We're in our, our second week of a new sermon series. This uh, series is, I called it, Windows to the Spirit's Story. The idea behind it is um, I wanted to do kind of a church history kind of uh, sermon series, one that is inspired by people who have uh, followed Jesus in the last 2,000 years and have maybe accomplished something or or have somehow... it. Uh, been an emblem for us for Christ's work in the church and particularly his spirit's work. The reason I titled it um, the windows to the spirit story is because of this passage out of John chapter 14, where Jesus is talking about uh, the future. He's talking about what's going to happen after he dies and after he's resurrected. This is, these are the things he tells his disciples are going to happen. He says, I have said these things to you while I am still with you. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I have said to you. All right. And the book of Acts then chronicles that story of, uh, of what happens after Jesus is resurrected and after he ascends. The Spirit comes and the Spirit engages in a project. The Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, comes to engage in a specific project. And what is that project? To build the church. And so when I teach church history or when I talk about church history, I'm talking about the story of the spirit. I'm talking about his story unfolding. I'm talking about people who have rejected his work. I'm talking about people who have uh, followed him. I'm talking about people who've done both of those things, but we're talking about the spirit's story. And we have stained glass windows in here. Our, our stained glass windows don't tell any stories, but most churches that have stained glass windows do have something that tells a story. And so we, we are going to look at some of these figures from church history, look at their story, not in order to raise them up, not in order to give them some kind of glory, but in order to look at the history, the story of the Spirit of God, to look at what Christ's Spirit has done and accomplished and worked um, through the church. So today uh, our window is, uh, I'm going to turn... I'm going to turn this light off so you can see a little better. The window for today is John Chrysostom. Now, some of you know that uh, I wrote my master's thesis on John Chrysostom, and it was 95 pages long. Um, so sit tight. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, the, uh, John Chrysostom, though, is a fascinating figure from church history, and he was one that I, I couldn't do a church history uh series without talking about John Chrysostom because he, he, enca he encapsulates a whole lot of lessons that are really important to me as a follower of Jesus. So I spent way more time than I ever should have spent on creating a stained glass window art project for John Chrysostom. None of the other things that I create for this series will look as detailed as this probably. Um, but I, I just, I was like, I got to do a really, really good job. So that right there is probably the best art project I think I've ever done in my life. Um, and I, I, yeah, I spent more time than I ever will again. <laughs> uh, it's not as impressive as this mosaic that is on the floor of, uh, a, the, of a big church in uh, what's modern day Istanbul, which was the city that John was a uh, pastor of for a while that is, is inlaid with gold and such. In fact, when the, uh, when the Muslims um, overran Istanbul at the time, it was Constantinople. Um, when they overran it, they went into Hag Hagia Sophia. 
the church that this is in, and they were so impressed and so oh, blown away by the art there that they couldn't bring themselves to destroy it. So these armies, when they would conquer places, they would destroy all the Christian art. But when they went into this place with John Chrysostom uh, on the floor, they just they couldn't bring themselves to do it. So instead, they covered it up for a thousand years. <laughs> um, but recently, uh, the Turkish government has, has unveiled all that because they knew it was a gigantic tourist opportunity. Um, anyway, I'm I'm running out of off course. Uh, I wanted to uh, I wanted to before I go into actually John's story, I wanted to give a word of warning, the same warning that I gave you last week, and that is the idea is not to give glory to these people. Everybody I'm going to talk about over this the course of this sermon series were sinners. Like, in fact, I can I can give you a a, a long list of the things that John did really poorly. He was a sinner, right? And so what we are looking for is we're looking for the spirit of Christ alive in John, alive so that we can glorify Christ in their stories. Um, and one of the, and another thing that happens, another word of warning that goes along with that is what we often find ourselves doing when I tell these amazing stories about Christians who have passed and who, who gave their lives for the faith. A lot of times normal everyday Christians look at that and they feel less because of it. They look at these magnificent accomplishments and they think, wow, I'm a junkie person. Wow, I'm an awful Christian. Wow, I don't do this. Wow, I don't do that. I want to remind you of a passage. I What I did last week was I took two passages that were not related and I mashed them together. Uh, but this is the actual passage that I was looking for. Uh, <clears throat> and that is from Romans 8. Paul's talking about the spirit living in us and he's talking about um, what life in the spirit is like. And he says this, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit that dwells in you. In other words, the spirit who brought Christ back to life, the spirit who gave Christ the power to overcome sin and death, that same spirit lives in you. The spirit, we talked last week about Felicitas, who gave her life for Christ, who faced the beasts in the Colosseum. The same spirit that comforted her and cared for her and saw her through and gave her courage is the same spirit that lives in you. And the same spirit that allowed and empowered John to do the things that he did is the same spirit, the spirit of the risen Christ alive in you. So do not, under any circumstances, ever walk out of one of these sermons feeling like, wow, I'm a lousy person. Wow, I could never do that. You're not supposed to do it anyway. It's the spirit alive in us that is supposed to accomplish these things. So John uh, is, uh, he was just your normal, everyday, young person in, uh, in ancient Antioch. He was born around the year 350 or so. Nobody knows exactly when he was born. So uh, about 300 years after the, the life of Jesus has, has ended and he's been resurrected, John is on the scene. And he grows up in Antioch in about the year, at about the age of 17, he uh, joins a Bible study. And uh, un, quite unlike any sort of young man Bible study you've ever heard of, though, they uh, would do crazy, crazy things. They would meet in the desert. And they would fast for days at a time and memorize scripture. It said that John had the entire New Testament memorized by the time he was an adult. It's perfectly possible. I've met people who, who were capable of doing that. Um, 
And John, after a while, gets uh, fed up with how uh, lackluster his friend's faith is. And so he goes off on his own and goes into uh, live in a cave where he says, "Can't I can't tell you whether this is true or not. He says that he stood for two and a half years, never sat down, slept against a stone wall. Again, trying to memorize scripture, praying. Really weird stuff to us was pretty common, commonplace in that time period for somebody who really wanted to take their faith seriously. So John goes through all this, and he, what happens is he ruins his, his kidneys. And he doesn't know that that's what it is, but all of his, all of his uh, symptoms are consistent with someone who ruined their kidneys because he deprived himself so much of food and nutrition. So he comes back to the city, and he feels like, I'm just a failure of a monk. Because there are all these other monks at the time who are living out in the desert, and they don't seem to be having to come home because they're too weak to fast all the time like him. So he comes back to Antioch and he's just really depressed. And uh, there's a bishop there who's getting old and he doesn't want to preach anymore. And he asks John if he'll preach, if he'll start to preach. So John's a young man and he starts to preach in a very big church in the city of Antioch. And people begin to come from miles and miles and miles around to come and listen to this guy preach because he's such an exceptional preacher. After his death, he'll get the title Chrysostom, which means golden mouth or golden tongued. And uh, his, his preaching is strong. His preaching is uh, so powerful that people uh, just like flood into these giant cathedral. They're standing in the back. There's no, there's no room for any extra. There are people who stand with the doors open in the streets, hoping that they can just maybe make out one paragraph of what he says. All the while, he's preaching from a reading desk because he's so physically weak, right? So in these old cathedrals, the pulpit would be way, way up there. And then there'd be on the other side, there'd be what was called a lectern. So from the pulpit, you could preach from the lectern, you could read scripture. And then down on the bottom of the cathedral, down on the floor, there was what was called the ombo, which was this place where you could sit and you could read announcements, essentially. Well, John didn't have the strength to go up the uh, stairs. And so he preached from the ombo, sitting down. I would be a horrible preacher sitting down. I would just, it would just be a nightmare. And John preached all of his sermons that way. And people still were flooding, crowding around to come and see him. People started to travel from as far away as Spain and the, um, the farthest uh, eastern, western reaches of Africa. They would travel. And this was a, a thing of huge expense, a thing, uh, just an unbelievable kind of journey at the time uh, to go this long and this far just to hear a preacher. So John, uh, in the year about 300, 298, 297, something like that, the uh, bishop, who's the overseer of the church of a big church of a, a region of churches of Constantinople. Okay, Constantinople at the time was the center of the Roman Empire. It was the most important city in the uh, really in the Western Hemisphere, East I don't know Eastern Hemisphere. That's not quite true. There are lots of other anyway. It's a really important city, <laughs> filled with riches, filled with all sorts of power. The people who were in power there were some of the most powerful people in the world. So the bishop there dies, and the emperor says to himself, I want the best preacher to be my 
my new bishop. I want the best for me, not because of Jesus or anything. I just want to have my church have the best preacher in the pulpit. He's got to be the absolute best. And so there's a guy who had heard Chrysostom and he says, this is the guy you want. If that's, if that's what you want, if you want the best, then this is the guy that you need to get. This is the, the person who needs to be uh, in place. And he said, but there's a catch. John will not under any circumstances come and be your bishop. And the guy whose name was Arcadius, who's the emperor, said, what do you mean he won't be my bishop? Like, I've murdered people for less. What do you mean he won't be my bishop? And he's like, oh, this guy's different. He's really hard-nosed. He's got really strong scruples. He's not going to just be your bishop. Like, it's not, it's not going to happen. And so uh, Arcadius says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to kidnap John Chrysostom and put a, head, a bag over his head and anoint him as my bishop uh, in Constantinople. So he does. Uh, John gets this letter that says, meet uh, these people outside the city gates at night. Um, John obviously wasn't a very smart guy because he went <laughs> and he shows up. Somebody puts a bag over his head and rides him on horseback all the way to Constantinople. And uh, when he gets to Constantinople, they don't take the bag off of his head. They perform the ceremony to, uh, to make him the bishop. And once at that point in time, they believe like once you were bishop, that was it. You couldn't do anything else with the rest of your life. You had to stay the bishop forever. So John ends up bishop of Constantinople. And uh, what happens is that Constantinople, being so wealthy and being so powerful, is filled with what we would uh, delicately call sin. <laughs> it is bad. The, uh, the church there has like 15 to 20 different priests who live at the church, and all of them have a live-in mistress. Many of them have more than one live-in mistresses. And uh, the church is filled with wealth. I mean, just overflowing with wealth. And the, uh, the people who beg on the streets outside of the, uh, the cathedral there are, are given nothing from the church. Absolutely nothing out of the church's offering or, or treasury, as they would call it back then. There was no offering to the poor, to the needy whatsoever. So John, immediately, he uh, refuses to live in the palace that is for the bishop. He refuses to live there. He lives in a very, in like a hut that's just off to the side of the cathedral. He fires all of the priests who have uh, the who have had mistresses that, that live in with them, and uh, and he sets up a fund for widows and a fund for orphans, and he basically starts what we would call think of as social work within there. They are counselors type people who work with people to try and get them off the streets. He. Um, he begins a hospital at the time, which was not a place that you and I would really want to go to get medical treatment, but it was better than, than what people would get by simply dying and languishing in the streets. And so he basically reforms the church in Constantinople like that, uh, which is a really diplomatically a bad idea, right? Because now all these priests that he's fired are not very happy with him. All the people who are getting fat off of the church's money are not very happy with him. But there's this woman. She's the wife of the emperor. Her name is Eudoxia, and she loves him. She thinks his preaching is amazing, and she just thinks it's fantastic. And for year after year after year, she defends him, and nobody will go against him because she's blocking them all. They can't go against the empress. And one day she is uh, elevated to the rank of a Caesar herself, okay? And they hold the, the, uh, 
They hold the um, ceremony to make her a Caesar right across the street. They, ex they, raise, they erect this statue to her right across the street from the Hagia Sophia, the, the church that he preached in. And they do the ceremony during church. Okay, So just imagine there's like a band out right in front of our doors. And there's this big ceremony to, to elevate this person to a very high status. And John Chrysostom throws his sermon out the door. And he preaches about how she is uh, uh, wrong and that it is idolatry and it's not okay. And so suddenly she turns on him and uh, she, along with others, have him exiled. Okay, and He's sent across this great river. It's called the Bosporus. It's still got the same, same name today. He, he's sent across the Bosporus to, to basically under house arrest. And uh, just when they do that, Eudoxia has uh, several things happen in her life, and she's convinced that these are bad. These are bad things that happen. She's convinced that uh, that God is punishing her for having uh, exiled John, and so she she weeps and pleads with her husband, the the emperor Arcadius, to have John come back. And so he comes back under the condition that he, under no circumstances, would preach against anyone in the royal household. So within weeks, he preaches another sermon uh, where he compares Eudoxia to Herodias. Herodias is a less than um, appealing figure from the Bible. Herodias is the one who wanted John the Baptist's head on a platter. So John, for all of his, uh, all of his good nature, um, was not a diplomatic guy. Right? No, no mincing words. So Eudoxia, once again, very angry at him. And they again have him exiled. And this time there are, um, there are riots in the streets for having him exiled a second time. And uh, John writes a letter to all the other bishops in the Mediterranean world asking them to come to his aid. And there's a whole lot more to the story. But basically to make this long story not as long as it could be, uh, he is tried, found guilty of, of things that are really flimsy charges. And he's sentenced to uh, go and be imprisoned in this horrible, notorious prison on the very eastern edges of the Black Sea. And he's forced to walk during the rainy season on the northern shore of the Black, of Black Sea. This is a man, again, who preached sitting down because he did not have the strength to climb some stairs to preach from the pulpit. And they force him to walk along the shores of the Black Sea. And he dies en route. The reason I bring John Chrysostom up and the reason I, the thing I want you to take away from his story is this. On paper, John is a complete and total failure. Imagine if you're, if you were applying for a job and on your resume, you put exiled twice. Nobody likes me. Fired a lot of people who really hate me. Gave away all the money. <laughs> probably even if you just did the last one, you probably wouldn't be very very well off um, in your whatever job you were seeking. So he dies in disgrace, just utter disgrace. And it takes uh, his people who kind of were his fans work for more than 20 years to kind of reform his legacy until finally people realize that he was wronged and some different facts come out and they realize that the, the trial that he was tried under were, were wrong. And so he's, he's given a lot of honor and glory kind of after a vindication after his death, but during his lifetime, he didn't get any of that. He dies. 
so to give you uh, just some explanation, some further stuff here, this word in the, the, the drawing that I did is this Greek word. I told you we're going to kind of talk about, we're going to give each person a Greek word from the Bible that kind of em, is emblematic of their life. It's for John, I chose the word nekao, which means to overcome or to be victorious or conquer, right? And it's a, it's a great, uh, great word that is all over Scripture. We're going to talk about it a little more. Um, and also, whenever you see an icon like this and they've got gold on it, the gold is not, again, to be their, um, their glory. The gold is intended to present or represent or symbolize the glory of Christ breaking through their lives. Just so you are aware, I'm not trying to commit heresy um, or idolatry. <laughs> and then there's another Greek word I thought you, that's in the little coloring thing that you got. It's the word keruso, which means I proclaim or I preach. And since John was such a great preacher, that's the reason that that word is there. And so this idea of nekao and, and to be victorious, so often we are so tempted to define our victory, to define our own uh, sense of conquering or overcoming or accomplishment by what we could put on our resume, right? The, the statistics of our life. Or if we win the fight, right? I mean, that's, that's what victory means is to win. So when we're engaged in some sort of struggle or some sort of conflict or some sort of fight, it's so easy to think if I win the fight, then I'm victorious, Right, so that John, is a, he loses every, basically every fight he's ever in with anybody, any argument he's ever had. He loses all of those arguments. And so we might say, what a failure. Eudoxia won. Arcadius won. All of his opponents, they won. John said this during his lifetime, during one of his sermons, which I think is helpful as a reminder, as, and it's going to be kind of our jumping into Scripture now. The cross is the hope of Christians. The staff of the lame, the comfort of the poor, the destruction of all pride, the victory over devils, the guide of youth, the pilot of mariners, the refuge of those who are in danger, the counselor of the unjust, the rest of the inflicted, the physician of the sick, the glory of the martyrs. The cross is all these things. And what is the cross? But an emblem of weakness and shame. What is the cross but an emblem of death? What is the cross but an emblem of failure? I think I know Paul talks about somewhere in there of Christ scorning its shame, right? Taking on all of that weakness, all of that junk, all of our pain, all of our weaknesses. So go ahead and make your list of all your failures. Go ahead and make your list of all the things that you ways in which you've been wrong, all of those things, all of the things that look like failure. Go ahead and make your list. And then pin it to Christ and his cross. Watch him crucify it. Watch him carry that death. So that the cross is this, at the very core of our faith, is this the belief that Jesus' victory is had in his losing. That there's something else that happens behind the cross. It's not the surface level of him dying that we're looking at. It's the victory of his sacrifice. It's the victory of his selflessness. It's the victory of his love that leads him to the cross. It's the victory of the things that are unseen. It is the victory 
and his victory that will live on. His victory is eternal. His victory overcomes the consequences of death and shame and sin. His victory is what we ought to hold on to. His victory is what we must seek. So when you are engaged in a conflict, when you have some kind of pain, when you have some kind of project that you must work on, when you have whatever it is in your life, how would you define victory? Will you define it the way that we so often do? Did I win? Did I overcome? Did I conquer? Or will we define it through Christ? This passage from uh, uh, and uh, through Christ and His cross. This passage from First John chapter five that, that Billy read for us earlier. I'm just going to read a little bit of it again here. For the love of God is this, that we obey his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whoever is born of God conquers the world. That's nakao. Conquers the world, and this is the victory that conquers the world, our faith. So you want to be victorious? If you want to win an argument, then find a way to live Christ's commands in the middle of that argument. Maybe you win, maybe you don't, but you will always be victorious if you live out of Christ's way. If you live in faith and trust that Christ is who he said he was. If you live and follow his commandments, there is no way to not win. This is uh, when uh, Joyce was, was talking about artists, I was thinking about... Um, I was thinking about how when I first came here um, seven years ago, one of the reasons I was willing to become the pastor of this church was the attitude of the people who are in leadership. Because so often the attitude of people in leadership at churches is, how do we grow the church? How do we make this thing bigger, 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 bigger? And if you don't make it bigger, then you can't be a success. The only definition of victory is bigger, bigger, bigger. Better, 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 better. But the people I encountered here... People like Ardith really desired something a lot deeper because I knew that I couldn't come in and create people with that kind of attitude. I couldn't, I can't, you, I can't make you change your mind on what victory is. Would have been a miserable calling to come and try and to always work against that. But when the, the, the common goal was, no, let's see Jesus alive in our midst. No, let's follow Jesus together. You know what? Let's follow Jesus even if it means our, our numbers dwindle. Let's follow Jesus even if it means that the people around us will think we're, we're whatever. Let's follow Jesus even if this, even if that, even if whatever happens. Come what may, let's follow Jesus. And let's call that victory. Let's celebrate that. And I was thinking about how uh, Ardith was someone who really loved hymns. Ardith was someone who really loved uh, a certain way of playing the piano. Ardith was, some, Ardith was somebody who really loved uh, the organ. And I remember her being among others of saying, you know what? I love all those things, but what I love more is my church and the things Jesus are doing in my church. And I'd really like to see those things live on a lot more than I'd like to see this other stuff live on. So that I came into a place where people were willing to kind of lay down preferences in order to commonly seek Christ's victory. To commonly hold his, our faith in him and our faith in, 
his in the the virtue of following his commandments to place those high above anything else. And so uh, I ask you. I've got this little little. I made a little coloring thing for you. We're going to do a couple extra songs to end today. I've got this little coloring thing for you. And at the bottom, maybe you don't like to color. I hope you do. It's a lot of fun. There are plenty of crayons spread around. You should color. <laughs> but if you don't, that's okay too. Uh, but for everybody, is just down here at the bottom for you to ask yourself. How can Christ redefine, redefine victory in my life? How can Christ redefine victory in my life? That is a really tough question. You might ask, like I would ask, well, what if I end up like John on the shores of the Black Sea dropping dead? (laughs) That doesn't sound like much fun. And yet, John in the end gave glory to Christ for his life. He held on to that very last moment. In his last words, he was on his lips in his last words and were not Words of regret. His last words were not words of, man, I wish I would have won. Man, I wish I would have held on to my post in Constantinople. I wish I would have lived in that palace they offered me. Last on his lips were praise for the Spirit of God living in him and giving him the kind of grace that he needed to hold on to a different kind of victory. So come what may, Let us hold fast to Christ and his victory. And I'll end with these these words from Romans chapter 12, where Paul is trying to talk about what life, a victorious life, looks like, I think. And what he talks about in this passage has nothing to do with achievements. It has nothing to do with glory. It has to do with living Christ's love. And he says these at the end. He says, no, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If, you are, if they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will keep burning coals on their heads. Paul's a nice guy. Um, <laughs> do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That overcome is that word nikao. Overcome evil with good. Cling to Christ's goodness in your life. Cling, cling to his commandments. Cling to him and his way of being victorious. Don't you think he could have come down and just wiped everybody out that was wicked? He could have done it a different way, I'm sure, if he really wanted to. But Christ secures and seals his victory with a loving sacrifice. So cling to that. May the same spirit that was alive in him, the same spirit that was alive in John, be alive in you and in us together. Let's pray. Jesus, you are so good and you are so gracious. And I I thank you that John was not perfect. (laughs) I thank you that that we don't have any other perfect uh, heroes. I thank you that we, we can look at imperfect people and see that your grace is still alive and see that your love is still breaking through and see that your glory still seeks to shine in the midst of broken vessels. And so, God, I give you my brokenness. I give you the brokenness of this church. I ask you, I ask you to speak 
to each and every one of us in ways that we might live in your victory, that we might replace the, the desire to conquer and to beat over the head and to, to win the argument, that we might replace those things with things like love and self-control and gentleness and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, generosity, these things that come from a life lived in you. And may we cling to those and to your promise that that is really our victorious lifestyle, a lifestyle that trusts you, a life that follows your commands, a life that clings to your loving and gracious kindness. Make us more like you. Fill us with your love. Fill us with your spirit. Fill us with your victory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.